0: Uh, Sylvia Bloom is a name that probably most of us have not heard. She lived in New York City, had a modest apartment, uh, rode the subway to work every day. She worked until she was in her 90s at a legal office there in New York. Uh, fairly regularly, her and her uh, niece would go out for lunch, and and knowing her aunt's modest uh, Living and means Jane would always pay for her aunt's meal uh, when she when they went out to lunch She died Sylvia Bloom died in 2016 and everybody knew her who knew her was shocked to find out that she had left 8.2 million dollars to various charities in 2015 a retired grocer uh, in the Midwest left 13 million dollars to a local Catholic high school and in 2014 uh, a jc penny janitor left 5 million dollars to charity people had no idea that these people had such wealth and were worth so much money and these stories are amazing and admirable Most of us, if we had that kind of money, would live like we had it, which is probably why we never will and why they did, but that's entirely beside the point. Uh, These stories are, are admirable when we think of finances and when we think of living in this world and not being in love with the world or the things of the world, but when it comes to our spiritual life, stories like these aren't really how God has designed us to live. And sadly, there are many Christians who, who I think do. They have incredible wealth and riches in Christ. They are aware of the treasure that, that God has given us in Jesus Christ. But rather than giving it away while they live, they hoard it. They read their Bibles, they go to church, they go to growth group, they attend adult Bible classes, but never give their faith away, never share it with others. In contrast to that, there are some Christians who live the opposite way. They have no idea just how spiritually rich they are and subject themselves to living life as paupers. Zolt and Giza Pilati, a pair of brothers who you've probably never heard of, they were found living in a cave outside Budapest. Unbeknownst to them, their, the, the sister, their aunt, the sister of their estranged mother had left them a fortune in 2010 of $7 billion. Some of us hoard what God has given to us as though somehow it's admirable to be spiritually wealthy without giving anything away. Some of us are content to live like paupers when Christ has given us, or rather God through Christ, has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As we were reminded just last week in Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Some Are spiritual hoarders, some are spiritually wealthy and have no idea what they have. There are some, however, a third class of Christians, or maybe fourth, because the the first would be those who know how spiritually wealthy they are and live like they are spiritually wealthy. But the others are those who have spiritual wealth, who know the riches of what God has given to us in Jesus Christ and have no idea how to use it. I remember uh, when I was in high school, going to the Navajo Indian Reservation in Arizona frequently and. Uh, it started just going out with uh, my youth group, and then it turned into me staying summers out there and living with the missionaries and working missionaries out there. But it was amazing to me how uh, the older generation of, of the Navajo people had grown up not living in homes, not Western homes like you and I think of them, but living in hogans. It was a, uh, a wood and mud round structure. It was one room, and it was round, and that's what they were used to living in. Well, the Navajo Nation had come in and had built these people houses in place of their hogans. And so these people, these older Navajos would move their stuff in, but they would move all of their stuff into the living room and they would just use that one room in the house all the rest of them were empty never used they would cook in the kitchen but everything else living eating sleeping all of it was done in this one room there are some of us who kind of understand exactly what we've been given in Christ we understand that he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places but we don't exactly know how to use it we're going to talk about that today there here's the bottom line God has given us spiritually a blank check that we can continue to spend on or maybe an infinitely valuable debit card that we can never run out of. He has deposited more into us spiritually than than we could ever imagine. Romans 8, 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, in giving Christ to us to bear our sin, to die the death we deserved to die, to bear the consequences for our sin, to redeem us from the curse of the law, in giving us Christ to do all of that, God has given us his greatest, most valuable treasure, And one of the things I confess regularly to God is that that in my own mind, I I often doubt the goodness of what God has given me. But the reality is, God is saying, if I have not spared from you my only son, my most treasured possession, why why would I spare everything else that there is? Well, we've been talking about these one another's love greet, serve, prefer, honor, welcome, edify, and even more than that. But the question before us today is, how do we actually live into that? How do we live into this one another community that God has created in the church? And how do we live out of the spiritual resources that we've been given in Christ? Well, today's one another is uh, couched, excuse me, in the answer to that question. And the answer is that we are people who live by the book. Christians, if you read Acts, the term Christian was a term that developed late in the early church. It was not the term that they gave to themselves. It was a term that was given uh, as a a mocking word, Uh, little Christs. uh, For us who are here today, so was the term Baptist. That was given to us in a mocking fashion as well. The first thing that the church was called, the first identification of the church was that they were people of the book. They were people of the book. How do we live out of of the riches God has given us? How do we live into the one another's? How do we live like Christ in the world? The answer is we live by the book and we let scripture permeate our souls. I hear regularly of people who have been Christians for years and have never read through the whole Bible. Beloved, this ought not be. We cannot be people of the book and ignore the book. To borrow from last week's analogy, to ignore the the book, this book, God's word, is a bit like having that fastest supercar ever Uh, a production supercar ever made being right here in the Tri-Cities, sitting in it, turning the key, trying to drive, all the while ignoring the gas can that sits outside the car, and we've got an empty tank. God has made us everything he he needs to make us in order to, to live in such ways. He has given us everything we need to give. But if you are ignoring this book, spiritually, your gas tank is empty. This is where spiritual burnout and exhaustion comes from. We, we give away all that we have. We, we ignore this book and our relationship with God and then attempt to give away what little bit is being poured into us and we find ourselves dry. Well, the, the picture of God's word, Psalm 1, is, is of a, for those who are deeply rooted in God's word are like a tree planted by streams of water where God pours so much into us spiritually that the ministry that we do in the church and in the world flows out of, of not what little bit God God has given to us, but the excess. It's like God has this gigantic picture of, picture of spiritual blessings, and our life is a cup, and he's just constantly pouring in, and our life is to overflow. This paragraph in Colossians 3.16 puts a tall order on our lives. It calls us to be holy, that is, sinless, like God. It calls us to be compassionate, to be kind, to be humble, meek, patient, bearing with one another, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us, loving people, letting peace rule in our hearts. Let's just pause there for a moment and say what an important reality it is in this time of politics when inside the church, at least in my experience. Politics is fueling more discord and division than I think anything I've ever seen in my life. We are to let the peace of Christ rule in us. We're to be thankful. We're to teach and admonish and sing and do everything for the Lord, giving thanks. That is a tall order. How do we do that? We, verse 16... Let the, uh, I'm sorry, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is the main verb of this verse. Uh, Let dwell seems like it might be a passive action. We're just allowing something to happen. That's not what the word let means in English. This is an imperative. God, through Paul, is commanding us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to have the word of Christ dwelling richly in us. it is to uh, The word dwell here is, is really the verb form of the noun house. That, that the word of Christ is to take up residence in us. It is to live in us. It is to find its home in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And it is not to do so meagerly. It is to dwell in us richly. It is to take up residence in us richly. Brothers and sisters, does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Does it dwell in your heart and in your mind? Do you like David meditate on it day and night or does it simply dwell in your house on a bookshelf or a coffee table? No, the call, the command on us is that we would have the Word of God, all of the Word of God, dwell in us richly. It seems to be popular in some Christian circles today to to think that we can somehow separate ourselves from the message of the Old Testament. Do you realize that when Paul wrote this, the Scripture was the Old Testament? He was writing the New Testament as he pens this when jesus in luke takes the scriptures and explain how they all point to him he's speaking of the 59 or 59 39 books we call the old testament genesis through revelation is all about jesus and all of it is to dwell in our Hearts and minds and lives richly, but not just, uh, but, but specifically, it is to be understood as the word of Christ or the word that is about Christ, which is why I would recommend this to you. If you don't have kids and you're sitting there thinking, I don't know how David and Goliath is really about Jesus, or Jonah is really about Jesus, or Job is really about Jesus, or Moses is really about Jesus. You should go through this. It would be an excellent exercise. Every single week, you'll be pointed over and over and over again to how all 66 books of the Bible point us to Christ. Too many Christians have only interactions with the book on Sunday mornings. It's like we we go to the all-you-can-eat buffet on Sunday, and we stuff ourselves full of food and think, well, now I don't have to eat till next Sunday. Except that's not really how things work for us. We might go to a feast on Thanksgiving Day and share an incredible meal with our families, but we still have to nourish ourselves day in and day out. We have to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it is with the Word of Christ. We we can't think that we can simply feast on the Word of God on Sundays and celebrate it on Sundays, and, and that's it. Our soul needs nourishment every day of the week. We must let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. The question is, what is the outcome of that? What flows out of it? What are the evidences of a life that is soaked in the Word of God? Well, there are, are three here in this text Uh, three outcomes of the indwelling Word of Christ, and, and we will look at those in just a minute. But before we do, I want us to notice something really, really important about this book, or this verse. Verse 16, each of us as individuals is to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. But the outcome of that is three things, teaching, admonishing, and singing. Specifically, Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with one another in your hearts, plural to God. The primary outcome, the primary output of the word of Christ dwelling in us here in Colossians chapter 3 is communal. This idea of a a monk living off somewhere alone, being content away from people, devoting himself to knowing and worshiping God, that's so far from the biblical picture of what God has for us. The word of God, when it dwells in us richly, drives us impulsively to the people of God. We want to talk about it, sing about it, share about it pray about it. None of, the, none of this is calling us to be kind to ourselves or forgiving to ourselves or loving to ourselves or admonishing ourselves or singing to ourselves. No, rather we're to be kind to one another. In fact, I would say the New Testament only imagines one scenario where Christians are isolated from the church, and that's in global missions. And the goal there is always to establish a church. And so even missionaries should not be separated from the church long term. I had breakfast with uh, Pastor Edgar yesterday and Maria, Jennifer, and I did. And then the conversation was great. We just enjoyed our time together. But he said he can always tell when people read their Bibles regularly. And I said, oh, yeah, how's that? And I pretty much figured I knew where he was going. Uh, he said it just flows naturally out of them. The word goes in and then it must find output. It must find uh, release. It must go somewhere. So let's look briefly. That's the bulk of my sermon right there. Uh, Let's look briefly at these three points, three outcomes of the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. Outcome number one is teaching. Uh, Teaching here, notice there are three participles. Those are ing words that follow this command to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. They are teaching, admonishing, and singing. And we're going to look at those three today, but, but these are not given to us as the means by which we do this. What Paul is not saying here is that you let the word of Christ dwell richly in you by teaching, or by admonishing, or by singing. They, these are the results of allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. When the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we want to teach somebody else. We want to admonish others. We want to sing. We've probably all met people who kind of run into the danger of making these things their, their whole spiritual life We've met the the teacher who is all head, no heart, no relationship, no humility. Think Pharisee here. It's just all output. The only thing that they're good at is telling you what they know. This one right here would certainly be my tendency, the one that I would get hung up on the most. And then there is admonishers. They go around complaining and criticizing. We've probably all met people who are like that, right? Who believe that playing the devil's advocate is a spiritual gift and somehow they're serving God's people by always bringing up the negative, always complaining, always correcting. And their, their spiritual life exists primarily of that. And then we've met those who find their, their spiritual life to be primarily that of singing. They, they think that singing is the primary source of their spiritual nourishment, Singing is not primarily input. Singing is primarily output. It is responding to the truth of God. We have all, no doubt, been blessed and taught by good music. But it was never intended to be the, the primary source of our spiritual nourishment. It was to be output. Well, let's, let's get back to the point. Those are our three, and the first one here is, is teaching. Uh, notice that this does not say preaching Preaching is a role in the church that is usually taken up by pastors or elders. It's the same office in the New Testament. That's not the goal here. The goal here is not to tell us that every single one of us should be a preacher. The goal is to tell us that every single one of us should be a teacher. Not necessarily in a class, but in interpersonal relationships. I used to call myself, you know, maybe 15 years ago when I first bought my first Mac computer, I became a Mac evangelist. It it changed my life. Crashing was a thing of the past. Freezing up programs was a thing of the past. I turned it on and it just worked. And it was so beneficial to my life at that point in time, I wanted everybody to know. I, I went out teaching them about what a Mac could do. This is the picture here, that those of us who have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly want to tell others about it. I wouldn't think of this too formally. In your own mind, think of who's that person, whose name comes to mind as the one who taught you what it means to be a Christian, to live out the Christian life. Maybe it was the person who shared the gospel with you, or maybe it was somebody who came along afterwards and said, hey, this is what Christians do. We, we go to church on Sundays. That's not, a lot of people come to, to, to Christ not knowing that. We, we gather together, we sing songs. We, we'll get to that one in a minute. We give of our time and our, our money. We don't automatically come to Jesus necessarily knowing all of those things. We need somebody to take us alongside of us, read or come alongside of us, uh, take our Bibles, read them together, and teach us what it means and what it looks like to be a Christian. Maybe, I'm sure we can probably all think of that person, at least I hope we can all think of that person in our lives. But then the, the follow-up question is, who thinks of you? When they're asked that question, who do you pick up your Bible with and, and read together and talk about what it means to love and obey Jesus? Every single one of us should have people in our lives who we're teaching to live like Jesus. And, you know, I I understand that usually the automatic revolt is, I don't know that much yet. I don't, I don't know enough to teach somebody else. I'm here to tell you, if you met Jesus Christ yesterday, you know enough to tell somebody else who he is there's always somebody who knows less than you. Always. And, and when we don't have the answers, I think we're afraid of not having the answers. Well, when we don't have the answers, we say, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'll find out. And we come back to the church and we get answers. We should all be teaching one another. Number two, we should all be admonishing one another. What is admonishing? It is warning and correcting what is wrong. If teaching is instruction in what is right, admonishing is warning and correcting what is wrong. The concept here, we won't spend much time, is, is closely related to teaching. Teaching is the positive that instructs us what to do. Admonishing is the negative that warns us what not to do. Uh, a friend of mine recently was trying to um, uh, go down to well, it doesn't matter where he was going, but he, uh, he found a, a washed-out bridge. It had collapsed in the middle. It looked like it was secure. He was thinking he could possibly drive his truck down one side of the broken bridge across to the other side because it was still touching. And somebody came along, and, and he said that's what he was thinking of doing. And the guy was like, you don't want to do that. He lived right there. He knew the bridge. He's like, you'd be in trouble. This is what admonishing is. It's, it's warning when there's danger. And there's always danger. Sin in our lives, it's it's like cancer. It kills us from the inside out. Sometimes it can be medicated. Sometimes it needs cut out. But it's always deadly. And admonishing is that gift we give to others when we see something in their life that is corrosive and carcinogenic to their soul. And we say, hey, watch out. Don't cross that bridge. Don't go there. We need people to teach us what it looks like to follow Jesus, and we need to be and have those people in our lives who warn us when there's danger. It takes guts, doesn't it? It takes guts to go to somebody and say, hey, what you're doing is not good for you. You need to stop. But it's what Jesus commands of us. It also, and maybe this takes more guts, it takes transparency, it takes vulnerability. It takes a willingness to let people speak that way into your life. Uh, this I hadn't planned on sharing this, but it came to my mind very briefly, and so I will share it with you. But I remember uh, being at a conference for young adults, and one particular uh, speaker got on the stage, and before he preached, he said, "You know, before uh, earlier today, one of the other speakers to me came to me, and he uh, he pointed out to me that something that I, I was doing." was wrong. He said, I just, I want to express public gratitude for this man and named him by name and said that he would love me enough to come and correct me. And uh, my thought in that instance is I want to be that guy. I'm the guy who when people come to me and correct me, they're like, I'm like, you know, who are you to tell me what to do, buddy? I don't want to be that guy. Be that guy who sees those who are willing to come and correct me as giving a gift to my soul, warning me from crossing the bridge, warning me from doing those things that will certainly provide spiritual at least damage, if if not greater. Thirdly, we sing. Singing is rejoicing in what is true. Teaching is instructing others how to live, how to follow Jesus. Admonishing is warning and correcting what is wrong. And singing is rejoicing in what is true. When Christ's word dwells richly, there is intellectual output. That is teaching and admonishing. But there is also emotional output. We sing as an act of rejoicing and delighting in the truth of who God is and what he has done for us. There are some, and we're not going to go into this now, who have tried to divide up the difference between what is a psalm and what is a hymn and what is a spiritual psalm. and Well, this is a hymn and this is a praise chorus and this is where it fits in. I don't think that's what Paul's intent is here. I think Paul's intent is simply to say, whatever kind of singing we do as a church, it ought to be filled with the word about Christ. When the word of Christ dwells in us richly, what comes out of us is the word of Christ. And, and, and we, should be, uh, we should demand that, that what we sing be both true and deep. There are hymns worth singing. There are hymns not so much. There are praise songs worth singing. There are some, not so much. The question is not of the style of music, but of the content of it. Is there enough truth in this song that our hearts can rejoice in the truth of what God has done for us? Is this song so saturated with the word of God and what it teaches about Christ that our hearts can praise him? They should be deeply biblical as it is the word that is supposed to not only inhabit our hearts, but also our mouths. I like to think of it this way. God is to be both the subject and the object of our worship. Much being written today that we hear on Christian radio, this is not a criticism when it's on radio. It's probably a criticism when it comes into the church is has God as the subject or God is the object, rather, but I'm the subject. I'm singing to God but mostly about me. It's not what God wants of our worship. I'm not saying none of our songs should talk about us. Read the Psalms. They're they're full of us. But I think in the Psalms, one of the things we find clearly is that God is both the subject and the object of those Psalms. That we sing not only about God, but we sing to God, and here's the key, to each other. We sing not only to God, we sing to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As we sing, we remind each other of the greatness of God's salvation. We remind each other of the community he has called us to. We remind each other of the fact that there will be a day when everyone who has ever believed from every tribe and nation and tongue will sing his praise together. I imagine it will be to use an inaccurate term, deafening. Sing loud so that everybody can hear, not you, but all of us together. Again, I'll never forget going to a conference where I I grew up in a church that never sang hymns. And I'd never, and I was working at a church that never or hardly ever sang hymns. And somebody comes out and they sit down at the organ and they start playing and they said, get out your hymnals and turn to page. And I was kinda like, oh man, this is not gonna be good. 5,000 pastors in one room together started singing. It was so loud, I couldn't hear my own voice. It brought me to tears. Why? Because it was the truth of God being sung by the people of God in such a way that what was heard was not my own voice, but the voice of the church. Oh, we should sing like that. We teach, we admonish, we sing. What does that look like in everyday reality? How do I become this kind of person who has the word of Christ dwelling richly in my heart? Well, I'm going to give you four suggestions, and they're simple. Number one, read your Bibles. Read your Bibles. It sounds simple, and it is. It's that simple. Read your Bibles. Now, I'm not going to say that everything we read in our Bibles is always easy. We're going to be putting some tools in your hands here in the very near future to help with this, a Bible reading plan and some steps to getting the most and some resources to getting the most out of your Bible reading. But if you don't know where to start, you're like, I've never read through my Bible ever. Well, you could do like any other book and start at the beginning and work your way through. That's kind of an excellent way to work your way through a book. Or I would also suggest pick up Mark. Read the book of Mark. Read one chapter every day over the next 16 days. I promise it'll be worth it. So number one, read your Bibles. Number two, make Sundays count. It's one of our values here, right? Invest your whole Sunday morning. Don't just come to a uh, a church service, send your kids to Sunday school, and leave. Invest your Sunday mornings. Uh, Serve somewhere. Be part of an adult Bible class, and we've got some of those that are gonna be starting up here again soon. Let your kids go to Sunday school and then bring them in here with you. I am personally of the mindset that one of the greatest gifts you can give your children is to give them 18 years of letting them see you worship with the church week in and week out. Make Sundays count. Invest your whole Sunday morning. Get in a growth group. We were looking at the orange report from 2019 this week, and it was very, very evident that those who are in growth groups are far less likely to wander away from the church. Why? Because we're connected. We have these teaching, admonishing, and singing relationships. Maybe, maybe maybe, I don't know which is the cart and which is the horse. Maybe they're more connected and they're more committed and therefore they're in a growth group, or maybe they're they're more connected and committed because they're in a growth group. I I don't know, I, I would guess it's probably both. But if, you're, if you think, you know, I don't really know where to have these kind of teaching, admonishing relationships. I show up on Sunday. I listen to the sermon. I leave. Where is that supposed to happen? Make Sundays count and get in a growth group. And fourthly, and I know this is scary, but share the gospel. Tell people about who Jesus is. Let the input of God's word in your life flow out naturally to those who don't know Jesus. If this seems too simple to you, It's not. It's not too simple. Historically, these things, attending church, reading your Bibles, prayer, they've been called ordinary means of grace. This is what the church has called them for a long time. Ordinary means of grace. The, the bottom line is that God does extraordinary things when we are faithful in the ordinary things. I think there's a a, a trend in modern spirituality to always be looking for the sensational, to be looking for the extraordinary, to be looking for that experience that catapults me to the next thing and the next height and the next height. When God is saying, look, don't neglect the ordinary things. I do the extraordinary through the ordinary. Read your Bibles. Make Sundays count. Get in a growth group. Teach. Admonish and sing, and see the amazing things that God can do with it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that you've given us not to merely dwell in a book, but to dwell in our hearts and in our minds, and to do so richly, abundantly, lavishly. Lord, may we be those people of the book who are committed to your word, to know it, to do it, to share it. Lord, whether it be Sunday school adult Bible classes, growth groups, or the preaching of the word here in Sunday services, let your word dwell in our hearts richly. And may it flow out of us as we speak to others about you and sing with the church about you and warn others of of the danger that sin poses in our lives. Lord, may it be a, a joyful and wonderful and life-giving experience for us as a church as we do those things, as you have designed those things to be. We thank you for instructing us in this way. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.